0: It is such a privilege to get to teach the Word of God. What a responsibility. What a joy. Right, let's open this morning to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. If you get there, you'll stand we'll read the passage. Matthew 16, will begin in verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, by the way, this is widely regarded as kind of the turning point in our Lord's ministry, where He went out of the years of popularity and into the shadows leading up to the cross. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, saying, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charge to his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Let's pray. Father, instruct us this morning. What blessed words these are. Well Father, you know what facet of the diamond you want to shine on our life today. I pray you'd do so if there's things we need to lay aside, if there's distractions in minds this morning, if there's sin that hasn't been resolved yet, let it be taken care of in the corridors of the mind before this message starts. I pray, Lord, You'd sanctify us today that You may be glorified. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. Those last two verses really aren't part of the message. I'll just say something in passing. Verse 19 It's often asserted that this uh, was said to Peter that he's going to have the keys of the kingdom of heaven if you compare this uh, to Matthew 18, verse 18. It's not only Peter. In fact, this is something he says to the New Testament church. And then the statement in verse 20, uh, what do you make of that one? He told his disciples they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. And someone says, well, I thought we're to preach the gospel to every creature. Well, see... Uh, This is where we recognize the different ages or dispensations in the Word of God for this time period. They were told, don't make a populist movement out of them, out of Him, because it would have been a damaging thing. And later on, when He rose from the dead, what was the commission then? Go into all the world and preach the Gospel to every creature. Okay, so we'll leave those verses uh, out of the rest of the discussion. I'm actually going to do something this morning that, as far as I was actually thinking about this, I don't know that I've ever done this before. And that's to preach basically a repeat message uh, to the same group. Uh, don't worry, it was from a while ago. And uh, many of you, I don't think, in fact I know, many of you were not even here. It was at the tail end of uh, the year 2015 uh, when I preached on this text as a New Year's themed message. Now I did have another message in mind for today. It sort of soared away. Uh, the Lord changed my mind on it yesterday. And I do intend to preach that later on. Uh, But as I was thinking through the past two years, and uh, considering the Lord's words here in Matthew 16, I was rather compelled to uh, re-emphasize some of what was preached on back at the dawn of 2016. Uh, What was going on there? We were just getting into the difficult theology of Romans 5 on Sunday mornings. How many of you remember that? Uh, That is a difficult passage when it talks about our depravity because of our sin in Adam. Uh, that's a hard concept, but that's where we were on most Sunday mornings. My family and I had been here just over six months. I was still traveling back and forth to Alaska, and I was thankful for the work up there, but admittedly, the back and forth was getting old by this point, and, uh, but I was still running my contracting business up there, and well, we were in the early stages of looking for another building to meet in. In fact, it was you that drove by the building over in Waukesha, wasn't it? And so we were looking at that building kind of over on the other end of this big subdivision. And uh, it sure looked like the Lord was going to open that door, didn't it? Uh, and I remember what I liked about that location. It's basically in the largest residential area. If you look in Google Earth of Helena, it's kind of right smack in the middle of the largest residential section. Close to the college campus and town. And uh, I think a conservative church was needed on the west side of town. And so I thought, well, hallelujah, the Lord's going to open this door. And some of you were there uh, when we went door to door in that community, just a few streets that way. And, and I remember I told several homeowners, I think we're going to be moving into this area fairly soon. Uh, well, uh, the Lord brought that to pass in a roundabout way, didn't He? It was uh, My wife and I were actually counting. I think it was 14 other buildings. Most of those you guys probably weren't aware of. Uh, that I did go look at or at least consider. And the Lord brought us full circle and uh, opened the doorway quite uh, marvelously for where we're sitting now, which is closer to the college, closer to town, in the same residential block on the west side, only uh, better than what we were expecting. And I'd say, uh, praise God for that. And a great deal of other things have happened. Uh, this last December, last month, uh, whether you were aware or not, we passed our 18th anniversary as a church, uh, some of you have been here since the beginning, not including me. I wasn't here. I was before my time. Uh, but some of you were here uh, those 18 years ago. Uh, now we have, uh, we have a website. We have uh, children's classes, Bible studies. and There's a lot of new faces among us. We thank God for that. But what now? What now? Is this a time for rest and reflection? God has answered prayer. Yeah, we have a building. That's nice. We've got a sign. Is that the goal? Is it a time to retreat? To just hide within these 100-year-old thick walls. Because things are so bad out there and deteriorating rapidly? Is it time to just stave off death? Or is it time for advancement for the Lord's sake? What does the Lord expect of us? I always find it a fascinating thing to read through the top New Year's resolutions of Americans. I find it rather sad. Uh, Some of you have probably done that. And what you usually find in the top ten, they rarely change. They'll shuffle around a little. Healthier eating. uh, More trips to the gym. Saving more money each paycheck. Quitting smoking. uh, Taking some kind of self-improvement class online. Those are the type of things that are usually in the top five. Uh, Is it a surprise that spiritual considerations... Measuring our life by divine standards is usually not among the most popular. Maybe that's why most resolutions fail by the second week of February. Because God's not part of the equation a lot of times. But hey, by then, if you're failing to go to the gym and eat healthier, well, Valentine's Day chocolate goes on sale. Why not eat a box? This is a good time of year to do a spiritual inventory. An honest self-check for individuals. For your family. For us as a church. You remember when Paul says... uh, Not to be unwise, but understand the will of the Lord. And then he says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Now there's a couple different Greek words for time in that passage. And the one he chooses is obviously inspired of the Lord. It doesn't refer to time in general. It refers to a specific allotment of time. So what he's saying to us is redeem the specific chunk that God's allotted to you, which has a beginning and it most certainly has an end. What are you going to do with this block called life? And are there some changes that need to be made? I suppose two good questions would be, number one, what needs to change? This is where New Year's resolutions usually fail, to go farther. What am I actually going to do about it? Someone has said admittance is the first step to recovery. You know the program. That's actually not true. Admittance leads nowhere unless you do something. A lot of people can admit a problem just to solve their conscience because they never really intend to change. Don't we know that by experience? I've been keeping journals for enough years to rejoice to be able to look back a decade and see how many of my own resolutions failed because they were based upon human ingenuity and effort. Well, I thank God for the growth He's allowed, but journals have a way of showing you how much you failed also. And I thank the Lord for that instruction. Well, I for one am thankful that most, the most important things in life are not left dependent entirely on human resolve. Before the mighty disaster that we refer to as the fall in the garden, God had resolved that He was going to provide a way of salvation for helpless, fallen sinners. We talked about that a little on Wednesday night. God's scheme of salvation didn't react so much to man's failure. The Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. God knew this was coming before the fall. As Christians, any resolution we make that's worth keeping and that we're able to keep is because God has moved first. Without Him, we can do how much? A whole lot that may appear oppressive, but nothing with respect to eternity. So as a New Testament church heading into 2018, in a rapidly crumbling society, one where Nuclear missiles being inbound is a little more of a reality than it was two years ago, isn't it? We were talking in Sunday school this morning. If you haven't read what happened in Hawaii yesterday, you should. They received an errant message of an incoming ICBM. Take cover. This is not a drill. For 38 minutes, they thought they were getting nuked. That'll wake you up. Oh, the world's changed society's heading downhill, we're in the lingering twilight of biblical heritage and it's fast giving way to the demonic blackness of humanism and Darwinism and paganism and a bunch of other isms. But there's some resolutions I believe the Lord would be pleased if we would make. Now, let's talk about the backdrop of this passage that we read a little bit. It was in the last chapter, chapter 15 at the end, uh, that records the second time Jesus had fed a vast multitude using next to nothing to do so. Now, I would contend that next to nothing is very important uh, because He could have done it with nothing. It was no uh, greater or lesser power to Him who spoke the universe into existence to use dirt or loaves and fishes or anything else. He doesn't need the created elements. But the central lesson, I think, was to convey to the disciples that he would use their small resources to demonstrate Ephesians 3.20 in advance and do exceeding abundantly above all that they asked or thought. That's why both times he gives to the disciples first, who then gave to the multitude. He's the God of the seemingly small and insignificant the God of the weak, the God of the remnant. And then in verse 6, he tells the disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I suppose in our vernacular, it would be watch out for the yeast of these people. Someone says, well, what what does he mean by that? Well, leaven, biblically, is a picture of sin and false teaching and, and the way it spreads. The first time it's mentioned is Exodus chapter 12 in connection with the Passover, where he brings up leaven and says uh, to put it away. That's the first time it was mentioned. And so, in the Jewish mind, leaven pictured one thing. Uh, we see it developed in the New Testament as more of a prophetic teaching also, that uh, things are going to get worse as the age progresses. Now, we may not have Pharisees and Sadducees today exactly. Uh, those two different groups have passed off the scene Uh, But the proliferation of false teachers and false teaching certainly applies. And of course, in typical fashion, what did the disciples do? They misunderstood. Oh, I'm not being mean to the disciples. I see too much of myself there to mock them. But they totally missed the boat. They look at their own empty hands, they think of their own empty bread boxes. And they say, ah, He's reminding us that we forgot to bring bread. Now Thomas, I told you, if you'd have kept a grocery list, this wouldn't have happened. In a sense, that's exactly what we're tempted to do. We see a vast multitude starving for spiritual nourishment. And at the same time, blind to their condition. And then you spend time meditating on how far the leaven has spread the unprecedented rise of deception and of deceivers, and the world's being systematically prepared to bow before the coming man of sin as the Antichrist ascends the throne of the consolidated nations of the entire planet. Now, it's very easy to look at our own hands and bread boxes and declare the situation hopeless. Let's just go into survival mode. Let's just eke out our remaining days in obscurity and wait for our exit from this barren wasteland by rapture or by death. We spent several weeks talking about the need for balance and contending for the faith. I think an offshoot of that is two mindsets we can have in regards to doing the Lord's work. One would be compromise. If you can't beat the monster, join it. I don't need to say much about that. What's the other one? The other one is fatalism. A hopeless mindset that we really can't be used by God at all. That standing for truth is ineffectual and powerless. Powerless. Though theologically we believe the Holy Spirit's here, in practicality we say He left. That can happen. Oftentimes, people who take the Bible literally are accused of being pessimistic. Now, I'll accept that term to a point because if you say what's your view of how things are going to go in these end times and heading to the end when the world's destroyed by flames, well... Uh, The world being burned in flames isn't necessarily optimistic, depending on your perspective. But that doesn't mean we're fatalistic and say God's not going to do anything. I remember what Tozer said. It stuck with me. I read it years ago. I don't even remember the book. He said, what God's going to do on a grand, national, or world scale, I don't know, but what God will do on an individual scale, I believe I do know. And here's what he was communicating. None of these exterior things are limiting how close any one of you can be to God. Have you allowed the negativity out there to distort your view of a powerful God up there and within you? You know, the original twelve, one of whom who proved to be a traitor... Now that's 8% in case you were wondering. Failure right off the bat. They had literal natural hope of turning the world upside down for the cause of Christ. If you and I were to go back in time and say, hey, hand-pick 12 guys that are going to get the message of Jesus all over the Roman Empire, I doubt you would have picked those. They had no eloquent, spellbinding orators in their midst. There were no towering scholars. Remember, Paul wasn't even there yet. He was certainly a scholar. But no, at the beginning, it was a group that was largely uneducated and unimpressive. And they were dull of hearing and they were slow to understand Christ's teaching. How many times did Christ have to say things before they got it? Same amount of times He has to tell you. They were quick to exalt self. They were easily defeated by the forces of darkness. They had massive enemies, including the Roman Empire itself, their own countrymen and the Jews, and even some barbarians thrown into the mix. And despite their very best resolutions, they forsook Christ and fled at the critical hour. So much for human accomplishment. This passage, though, is not framed around the resolutions of men. This passage is framed around the solemn resolution of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Does God make resolutions? Well, sort of, not exactly the same way you and I do. Remember, when the Lord said these words, He wasn't deciding something new. He was simply revealing to you and I something we didn't know. What he was communicating is something he'd planned to do since before the foundation of the world. So when God makes a a resolution, first of all, it's not based on previous failure or some new information. When he said these words, he didn't say, oh, we better change things now. God cannot change. He cannot make amendment. He doesn't need to. And Christ does not say these words on the eve of a new year, but the eve of a new age. And this resolution has been unfailingly kept for nearly 2,000 years since it was first uttered. And guess what? It's going to keep being kept until the church is removed by rapture and the spotlight goes back to the Jews. Now this conversation that we read begins with an interrogation. Notice verse 13. The Lord says to the disciples, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And by the way, I mentioned this was a dividing line in his ministry. This question is a dividing line among mortals. He doesn't ask him, What do men say about me? See, that's a different question. Oh, what wonderful miracles he does. He speaks so well. He asked, who? Who do men say that I am? Now, some said He was doing things by demonic power. Evidently, He's saying, who do men, at least with a semi-favorable opinion, what do they say about who I am? And the same question could be asked today all over the place. See, this is put in the Scriptures for our own instruction, of course. There's many answers given here. There's many answers Uh, you would hear out there, I hope there's not many answers represented in this room. I hope there's one. And of course they say, well, uh, some say John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist was dead at this point and at least Herod thought he was risen from the dead. Or uh, Elijah, the hero of Mount Carmel. Or Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. And do you notice any one of these given to you and I would be quite a compliment. If you stood up to teach a lesson and somebody said, My, you remind me of John the Baptist. I see a little bit of Elijah in you. Uh, you and I might think, Wow, what a compliment. But can I point out, all of those are so far beneath the Lord of glory, they're almost insulting. Insulting. It's no compliment to the Son of God to be told you're John the Baptist. He made John the Baptist. And then he turns the pendulum a little bit right at the disciples. All right, we've talked about everybody else. Who do you say that I am? And he's not so much saying, who is Christ, but who am I to you? Friends, your opinion doesn't change truth, but it better line up with truth. The, 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 the more we get, we were talking about this a little bit in the boys' class, how we're get, entering a world where self-perception becomes reality. If somebody says, I feel like a woman today, well, then they're required to treat them like that, aren't they? That's, what's, that's the brilliance passing through the public schools these days. I was telling the boys, what if somebody stood up and said, I feel like I'm the teacher today? I don't know how they'd handle that one. It's insanity. But we're living in a culture that's becoming more and more of the mindset that what I say becomes reality. Well, friends, let me tell you something. On Judgment Day, what you say does not matter. There's one voice on that day that matters. He's the living God, and if you don't agree with Him, you perish. Period. There's really only two answers to that question. There's the correct one, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now that includes everything. The Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one promised all throughout since Genesis 3. The fulfillment of all the prophecies of the world having a Savior eventually. He's the fulfillment of that. He's the Son of the real and living God. He is deity come into humanity. All of that's important. And then the other answer is something or somebody else. There's no such thing as halfway. This is a pass or fail test and every person's soul hangs in the balance. Well, of course, Peter's answer was correct and the Lord responds with this declaration. And uh, how Peter's heart must have been thrilled until a few verses earlier when the tone changed a bit. But right here, the Lord receives, or Peter receives his attaboy from the Lord. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. Now how come? Flesh and blood has not revealed the Son to you but my Father. In other words, it is a supernatural work for a person to ever recognize Christ for who he really is. If somebody can be brought to the point where they accurately believe that he is Christ, the Son of the Living God, that takes a supernatural opening of the eyes. It's the flesh that produces all sorts of other titles. When he's recognized as King and Lord, their eyes have been opened by God. And then he says to Peter, And thou art Peter. Now Peter means a rock or a stone. That's a reference to a new nature. You remember when the Lord first met him in John one forty two, He said, Thou shalt be called Cephas. I wonder what Peter thought about that. I'm going to be called a rock, a stone. Uh, Maybe Peter knew himself well enough by then to know that he had some failures to work on. But the Lord said, I'm going to make you something different. I think the the mentality stuck in Peter's mind when he wrote his first epistle in chapter 2, verse 5, talking about other Christian people. He said, you also, as lively or living stones, are built up a spiritual house. So Peter rightly understood when the Lord said that about him, he was also making reference to every single person the Lord was going to rescue from damnation. You, in effect, are going to be called a rock or a stone. If you are a real Christian, flesh and blood has not revealed truth to you. You say, well, I heard it in a sermon or, or something somebody wrote. You may have. But don't forget, people are only a conduit. If you see Christ for who He is, thank God for opening your blind eyes. It doesn't matter if a million preachers talk to you, you'd have never seen it. If you're a Christian, you also have a new nature. You also have a new name written in glory. You also are a small stone in God's spiritual building. And guess what? That building does not rise or fall on you. It needs more of a solid foundation, doesn't it? Well, the Lord says something about the foundation next. He says, you are Peter, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. <laughs> now, uh, you may know that's one of the more controversial verses anywhere in the Gospels. Uh, But I would say it's not really hard to understand what's being said unless you have a preconceived notion. Some of you have probably run across the teaching that Peter is the rock. The church is built on him. Of course, uh, probably the largest apostate denomination on the face of the earth teaches this you got to defend the Pope. you got to defend the hierarchy. You've got to defend the unbiblical authority to give new commands that God never gave. So we got to go to the Bible to prove it. How wonderfully satanic. That happens all the time. I find it interesting, by the way, if Peter himself is the rock, what do they do with verse 23 when the Lord says, get behind me, Satan, in the same conversation? Quite a way to talk to a so-called Pope, isn't it? No, the context won't bear that. Some would say Peter's confession itself is the rock. The words he said, uh, that's closer. Uh, But the problem is, Peter denied the Lord not long after this. Peter's confession is a pretty shaky foundation too, if it's based on Peter. No friends, I think unmistakably Christ himself is the rock. There's a couple good reasons why. First of all, We have to recognize the play on words. When he says Peter, uh, that's the word Petros. uh, That refers to an unattached stone. Now, this play on words doesn't come across in the English. This is is a place where the Greek words are important. Uh, He calls Peter Petros, which is an unattached stone. It's a rock lying on the ground. And then the other word rock he uses is the word Petra. So you have Petras and Petra. And you can imagine in the sentence coming out of his mouth how you'd hear the play. Uh, Petra speaks of bedrock. It's a massive immovable stone such as a mountain. If you're familiar with the town of the Edomites referred to as Petra. Anybody ever seen pictures of that carved right out of the red rock cliffs? I'd love to go there. Fascinating place. But it's named after the bedrock it was carved out of. Okay, so the Lord is saying, you, Peter, are a little stone. But upon an immovable bedrock, I'm going to build my church. Friends, the metaphor of a rock in the Jewish mind was unmistakable. I was going to turn there, we won't. Deuteronomy 32, you can verify it later for yourself. Of course, this is the Torah, the first five books. Their hero, Moses, writing his farewell address. Deuteronomy 32 is the song of Moses. And just in that one chapter, verse 4, 15, 18, 30, and 31, all of them speak of Jehovah as a rock with a capital R. Correctly so. So in the Jewish mind, this was already fixed. When you said rock, that was metaphor for God, at least when you used the word petra or bedrock. Uh, How about the New Testament? The particular Greek word is used 16 times, this bedrock word. Let me give you a few of the instances. Matthew 7, the wise man built his house upon, what do you think? Did he build his house upon an unattached stone or upon the bedrock? Uh, You guessed it, it was on the bedrock. Romans 9:33, "Christ is the rock, the Petra, bedrock of offense." 1 Corinthians 10, verse four, Israel drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ, once again bedrock. 1 Peter 2:8, Christ is referred to as the rock, the Petra of offense. The last mention, ironically, is Revelation 6, when people are crying out and they're hiding in the rocks, the bedrock of the mountains crying for them to fall on us, hide us from His face. So, unmistakably, it's Christ Himself that's the rock spoken of here. Alright, now, with that foundation in place, here's the resolution that He gives. Next sentence. I will build my church. With full understanding of human weakness and inconsistency, I will build my church. Even though leaven will permeate every fabric of society by the end, I will build my church. Regardless of how many men mock and hate the truth, I will build my church. Even though only a remnant will remain at the end of the age, I will build my church. It's quite an exercise to take those five words and emphasize each one of them. And it teaches a whole lot. Let me illustrate. How about I will build my church? Not you will build it. That doesn't mean we are not involved in the work. We most certainly are. I love the balance. In fact, we were going to turn there, but we won't. 1 Corinthians 3. You can read that on your own too, beginning in verse 5. And Paul actually is addressing the fact that these people had their superstar preachers that they gave all the credit to. And so he asked the question, Who am I and who's Apollos? Who do you think we are? All we are is ministers, servants. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. says the same statement in the next verse, that God gives the increase. And then he says, we are laborers together with God, co-laborers. But don't forget who carries the load of that, the heaviest load. As a pastor, you are inundated sometimes with books about ministry philosophy and the bulk of them make me sick to my stomach. I read another one yesterday. There's a few good statements, and I wanted to throw the thing out. But so much has been boiled down to a business model. Our statistics prove this, and this church does that, and you've got these three and four and five steps, and if you institute this program... This is going to happen and it's going to produce this and then you read the statistics and you tweak that and you put something in at the beginning of the religious factory and boom, a wonderful product falls out at the other end. And my question is, where's the Holy Spirit? You realize you could build a church using the name of Christ or Donald Duck and you could produce results using a business model? But that doesn't prove God did it. Not at all. The Lord says, I will build my church. It's he who is the unseen power that's personally involved in this undertaking. I am with you always, as even to the end of the world. It's he who is calling out and saving and perfecting this specific group. All right, how about emphasizing the second word? I will build my church. See, that's a prophecy. It's... At this time when he said it, the church was not even in existence, but it was soon going to be established and was going to last as long as he said. How about the third one? I will build my church. Now, he doesn't use the word create, although that's true also. The word build suggests time and process. The entire church age. The individual assemblies. Can I tell you something this morning? God intends this church to be a construction site and not a museum. A museum is dedicating to promoting the glory of things that used to happen and don't happen anymore. A museum is always clean and looks pristine because nothing is happening. In a museum, the people look just so because they're made out of wax. Construction site can be messy. Sawdust, noise, lives in various levels of growth, all of them under construction. Not wax showpieces. Ultimately, I know we're called to give glory to God, but ultimately we'll be showpieces when we're crowns or jewels in His crown in the heavenlies. How about I will build my church? That shows His possessiveness. Any groom's going to be jealous for his bride and the husband of the church is certainly possessive of his workmanship. Have you thought recently how precious this church is to him? This is part of the church of God which He purchased with His own blood and Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. And the last word, I will build my church. What is God's plan for this age? What is His primary vehicle to propagate His truth in this present dispensation? What is it that the New Testament calls the pillar and ground of the truth? Can I tell you something? The Lord didn't promise to build mission boards and parachurch organizations and radio stations and all these little pretty religious organizations that spring up all over the place. He didn't promise to build television stations. I'm not saying all of those are always bad, but here's what I'm saying. He promised to build the New Testament church. Mission boards can be great. But when I deal with them, you know one of the questions I like to ask? What is your relation to the local assembly? And can you give me some practical illustrations of how that's played out? Because I want to know, are they trying to subvert the pillar and ground of the truth, the local assembly? Or are they really coming alongside to help? Sometimes that gets forgotten. I don't think anybody means to do it, but that can happen. It's to the church that the following promise is made. Notice it. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I think that speaks of a few things. It speaks of propagation, it speaks of preservation, and it gives a motivation. I'll explain those quickly. What do I mean by propagation there? Well... This is one of the few places where the universal church is in view, not the local assembly so much, as it is the whole big picture. And now that's obvious from the context. How many individual churches do you know that have uh that have risen up and remained solid for the last two millennia? Uh, that would be none. So it's obvious he's not talking about one, one central group. He's not talking about some state denomination. The New Testament pattern is churches start churches, which start churches, which start churches, etc. And for this promise to be fulfilled, it had to include generation upon generation of locals' assemblies, which led to others. Uh, many today try to trace their lineage back to the apostles. It drives me nuts when I hear that. Nobody can do that. But you know, there's another sense in which everybody can do it. If we are a New Testament assembly functioning scripturally somewhere along the line that came from apostolic writing. And we don't need to try to draw it out. We can just say the Lord has done His work. Praise God. How about preservation? There's the guarantee of Christ's special protection throughout the ages. No matter the appearances. I have to wonder if you're familiar with the Dark Ages. You know what I'm talking about. How many brethren during the Dark Ages looked at that verse and said, I don't see it? It is very, very hard to even get information about solid churches during the Dark Ages, which, by the way, Roman Catholicism was never the true church. That's why we don't say we're Protestant. There was always a lineage of Bible-believing assemblies right through the Dark Ages, but the thing is, their history was written by their enemies who controlled the history books. So, we may not know all the information, but we do know this. Truth went right on through that millennia of blackness. And when the Reformers and others came out on the other side, they were standing on the shoulders of people who were already standing for truth in the middle. The Lord had promised to preserve. How about a motivation? What do I mean by that? Well, when he says the gates of hell shall not prevail, what does he mean? The word hell is the word Hades. It's the place of departed souls. It doesn't necessarily mean the place of punishment. Uh, But the term is also used of Christ going to the grave in Acts 2. So it's kind of a general term for the grave, the underworld. And how about the word prevail? That means to overpower or to stand against. I am convinced, and I said this two years ago, and I'm still convinced in this passage. Many times, I think we have the wrong picture in our head. When you hear the gates of hell not prevailing, what you're picturing is this little church huddled and this onslaught of demonic armies, but can I remind you something? Gates don't move. If you were in an ancient city under attack and somebody said the gates prevailed, what that meant to you was they stood up against the battering rams and the enemy was defeated. Now turn that picture around. When the Lord says the gates of hell will not prevail, He's saying the forces of darkness cannot stand up against the church marching against its walls. This is not post-millennialism. We're going to win everybody to Jesus so He can come back. Not that. But friends, individual assemblies which will exist until the rapture. We hear a lot of negativity, but can I tell you something? Somewhere on this earth, until Jesus comes in the clouds, somewhere, there's going to be Sound churches. You may not know about them. In fact, sometimes I think we're like Elijah. Oh, Lord, there's none left. And he could say, Oh, if I could instruct you and come with me over to the underground church in Iraq, we could go to China. Oh, yeah, we could go to North Korea. I have people that you don't know about. But I'm going to preserve them. Well friends, here's the point, though of that statement. In either of these cases, what's the posture of the New Testament church? Defensive or offensive? It's offensive. It's forward. We may be a remnant numerically. But it's no credit to the Savior who redeemed us to cower in a hole with some sort of defeated martyr complex. The darker it gets, the brighter our little light can become. Tell me, do you believe this morning you have been placed in such a time as this? That you are actually calling God a failure when you say, oh, that I could live in the 1950s. Do you know why you're not living in the 1950s? Because God decided it was best for you to be living in 2018. That's why. So we could pine away in some sort of fake nostalgia and unbelief or we can say, you know what? The Lord put me here and I'm going to serve Him here. We've been put here to glorify Christ in the midst of a world that hates truth and hates holiness. To charge the flames and to rescue doomed sinners from the jaws of impending death. To demonstrate that God still answers prayer and moves hearts and saves souls and sanctifies His children. The fact that you're still alive in this city and that I am proves there's more work to do for His sake. I hate some of the little cliches that float around all the time. I don't mean to use one here. But I really do believe that the best days of this church are ahead. Not because of some book I read this week. Not because of some conference I attended. Not because of some statistic sheet we're analyzing. Or some program we're implementing. Not because I'm such a great preacher. Not because all of us are so faithful. But because if you're a Christian, the God that indwells you, do you think He's lost power? No way. The need is great. The masses are starving from famine. The leaven is spread. Our loaves and fishes are few. Our hands and bread boxes seem really empty. But I can look out and I can see those that I'm convinced are among the petros, The stones in the Lord's building. And underneath it, I think by the eye of faith, I can see Petra the bedrock of Christ, and that we've been promised the presence of Jesus Himself. Think what we've been given. The sure word of the living God. Access into His presence and promises of answered prayer. The only message that can supernaturally change the wicked hearts of satanic rebels and turn sinners into saints. Armor against spiritual enemies. Promises to cling to. Forgiveness of sins. Everlasting life. A home in heaven. And a title deed to the mansion in the skies written in the blood of the Son of God. And a sure victory promised in the final day. What do you really have to fear? Friends, it's the mockers and the scoffers that have the reason to fear. It's the forces of darkness and all the devils that are going to be in hell that are going to be the laughing stock of all the universe. The weakest saint with the Lord on his side is the real majority. Let's enter this year on offense for the cause of Christ. Another passage I was going to turn to, turn to, but excuse me, I was going to turn to. But I won't. Romans 8, you know it. I think there at the tail end of that chapter, he lists our five major fears and blows them all apart. Keep in mind, Romans 8 comes right after all the description of human depravity, all the inability of man to save himself, and all the shocking description of the sin nature that every one of us still possess. And then you get to the end of Romans 8. And it's like Paul has his sword out and he's standing on a mountain and he's daring the demons or any circumstance to take his eyes off Christ. It's a glorious passage. And I think he deals with our five major fears there and hacks them all down. Who is he that's against us? We fear opposition. Oh, so many aren't going to agree. If God be for us, who can be against us? Do you believe God's right? Then what's the problem? We fear opposition. We fear provision or lack thereof. Is God going to give me what I need? And he asked the question, if He already laid down His Son, if He already gave that which is best first before you ever knew Christ, then how can you possibly think He's not going to give you lesser things that you need? We fear accusations. Oh, what skeleton's going to come tumbling out of the closet to make God displeased with me tomorrow? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that declares innocent. We fear condemnation. Some of you entertain a secret fear that the last day you're going to be hurled into hell. And some of you, that fear totally cripples you. You think Paul knew something about it? I say yes. Because what did he ask? Who is he that condemneth? It's Christ that died. Yea, rather, that's risen again. If Christ paid the penalty for my sin and the Lord says whosoever will may come, who's going to condemn me? Somebody says, oh, but what about God's affection? Yeah, all those things are great, but does he care? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Opposition, provision, accusation, condemnation, affection. Strikes all those fears down. He says we are more than conquerors. What's the state of your prayer life? Is it regression, is it maintenance, or is it offensive? When was the last time you stormed the gates of heaven with boldness? And you took James' words. And you said, oh, if Elijah was a man of like passions like me, and God heard his prayers, why not mine? Can I tell you something? The Lord is pleased with that kind of faith. When's the last time you walked into His presence with fear? Yes, but with confidence that He was ushering you in and that you had access to the King of Kings. How dishonoring to God when we cower in fear when He's there at His throne with the door open saying, come to me and ask of me and I'll show you great and mighty things which thou knowest not, but you won't ask. How about your holy walk with God? Are you on offense? For your part, are you taking the initiative in your own spiritual growth? Are you saying God has said, draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you? If that was true of others, why not me? When it comes to your study and obedience to the Word of the Scriptures, are, are you on offense? Do you open the Bible in the morning, half asleep, not expecting anything, trying to get through a duty, or do you open it up and say, oh, bless God, you want to feed me, and I want to be fed. Now where is it? Where is it? How about your witnessing to others? Is it guilt? I guess I better say something so the Lord doesn't bring it up later and that way they can cuss me out and we'll get this over with. Or sir, I notice you are laden with iniquity. Can I tell you, I know one who can set you free. I know one who can break the chains of iniquity and oh God, use me to shine light into their life. Every one of you that grew up in wickedness, there was somebody praying for you. And somebody was on offense and somebody came after you and somebody believed God would do what he said. You think God can break the chains of drunkards? You think God can destroy the vice of gambling? You think God can turn abusive husbands into men that are here praying on a Wednesday night instead of drinking themselves to death? Yes. Do you act like you believe it? How about our families? Are we on offense? Men, you're driving the ship. Are you just going to talk about change or are you going to do something? What's it going to be? If there's marriage struggles, are you going to get by another year? Are we going to have the same conversation in 2019 or are you going on offense? How about your relationship to the local church? Are you going to go on offense it's a precious thing we hear uh, periodically and we're so glad for the people the Lord brings and we hear it often it's so hard to find a church that just teaches the Bible I hear that more and more but let me challenge you finding a church that teaches the Bible with all the theatrics is not the end of the journey in many ways it's a beginning We have people who stream online. It's good to get the Word of God out, I'm thankful. It's, uh, it can be very useful. But some listen online, this is not a replacement for the local church that the Lord wants you to be the part of. It's good to have the technology. But friends, listen, the Lord has not replaced the church, and he's not going to. He didn't say, I will build my church until the 21st century. We, we, we'll all just meet online. There's a difference between can't come and won't come. So, what's it going to be this year? Cowering? Staving off death? Just hoping things don't get too bad? Or going forward with God at your side? Friends, listen, God hasn't changed. His promises to the church are the same. His promises to you are the same. So I would challenge you, take full possession of what God has given. Go forward. There's so much to do for His sake, friends, and this allotted time that each of us have is going to close soon. Let's use it. Lord, thank You that You love us and that You are infinitely patient. And Lord, forgive us at times for reading about the disciples almost with ridicule, as though we are any different. And Lord, I know You you included those accounts not so we could be puffed up, but so that we would see what we are. Not a one of us could stand up against the weakest demon out there. We couldn't atone for one of our sins. We can't even begin to change a soul for eternity. We cannot sanctify ourselves. We cannot change others. We cannot talk anyone into heaven. But oh God, I thank You that we are co-laborers in Thy building project. And I pray, Lord, You'd use this church to be a force for spiritual construction in this community to build lives. I pray there would be some spiritual sawdust flying around. I pray, God, You'd help us to press forward in this year with boldness and trust and expectation. Thank You, O God, for saving us. Now help us to live with the rightful purpose and expectation in the days ahead. Thank You for giving us truth and thank You that You do not change. In Jesus' name, Amen.